I thought it would be good today to spend some time, given that we have baptized two children into the visible church and into the outward administration of God's covenant of grace through baptism, we to, to spend this uh, time uh, talking about baptism, what it is, uh, and uh, its significance. Uh, many of you will be familiar with much of what I'm saying, and some of what I'm saying is actually repeating and amplifying what we read earlier in the service of baptism. But we're going to turn for our text to an Old Testament book, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. And you'll actually see that God, speaking through Ezekiel, talks about baptism. Talks about baptism in the work of the Redeemer and what God will do in days to come. Now, of course, the setting in Ezekiel is Israel, Judah, has been uh, taken captive, and they have been uh, punished by God because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness. God has has sent them into captivity. But God's covenant is an everlasting covenant, and this is this is one of the things that makes it a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace. It is an everlasting covenant. It cannot be broken. And God basically tells Israel, and you'll see this in the passage, that for his own name's sake, for the holiness of his own name, he will take up the duties of the covenant himself. And he will cleanse the hearts of the people from all their wickedness. Follow along with me as we read Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers." And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Here we end the reading of God's Word. Did you notice that last verse? There it is again. This is this promise. It, it begins with Abraham. It runs through several 
parts of the Old Testament into the New Testament and actually is repeated at the end of the book of Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the golden chain of the covenant of grace that spreads, that stretches from Abraham to the end of the age. And it is the heart of the covenant of grace. This promise what is made to you in the preaching of the word, but this promise is also signed and sealed to you in the sacrament of baptism. And thus, this promise we have placed before these two young infants. Well, they don't understand the words. They were probably napping a bit, which is good. They woke up when that cool water hit their foreheads. But this is also why we talk to the church and we talk to the parents and have them make vows, because they will be the front line of God's work in teaching them and proclaiming to them the gospel promises that as you repent from your sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your God and you are his. In the visible church, in the outward administration of the covenant, we might say already that is true, and that's what, that's what the Scripture means when, uh, when Paul says, but your children are holy. doesn't necessarily mean that they're already saved, but they are separated from the world, and they are seen as part of God's visible church and, and entitled to the benefits and blessings and also the obligations of being part of God's church. So we are we're going to talk about, first of all, the, uh, the sacraments as signs and seals, particularly baptism today. By the way, when we are reading that passage from Ezekiel, and God is, is introducing this thought, and he says, I'm doing this for my own names to vindicate the holiness of my name. I would imagine many of us, if you haven't looked ahead, we're thinking that the next thing from God is going to be a statement of judgment and anger. I'm going to vindicate my name by punishing you. It's already punishing them. But isn't it a remarkable act of grace where God says, I'm going to vindicate the holiness of my name by saving you? This is grace upon grace. This is grace that is greater than all our sin. This is grace that will be unconquerable and sovereignly administered. This is the promise. Signs and seals. What are signs and seals? Well, signs, uh, take a, a cognate word, signify. That's a word that's related to signs. And it basically means that these signs communicate spiritual truths about God's promises of salvation through visible and tangible elements that are applied to us. Signs teach us something about God's covenant of grace. The sign of baptism teaches us certain things about God's covenant of grace. In seals, we'll talk about how, the, uh, how baptism seals, uh, there's a, a different element 
that we will come to. But what about signs? Well, we talked earlier about union with Christ, a sign of God's promise of union with Christ. Now, there is a condition, and that is faith. There's a condition, repentance and faith. It doesn't happen at the time of baptism. It happens when God sovereignly pours out his spirit, his life-giving spirit, and brings a person to faith. They are united with Christ in faith. Romans chapter 6, verses 45, 4 and 5 says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In baptism, we are signifying, we are teaching that when a, uh, when a person believes, they are, uh, they are in union with Christ. They have died with him, died to sin, and raised up with him to walk in a new way of life. And also that uh, dying, they will also be participants in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of the age. Regeneration, a new life. Listen to what Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 of his letter to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul introduces that thought. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he's talking about the, the coming of the Son of God, the incarnation, when Christ came and brought with him the message of grace and truth. We receive the law from Moses. Christ comes and teaches grace and truth. And by the way, you need both. It's not putting the two of them in opposition to each other. They actually complement each other. When that happened, God also saves us not because of works that we have done, but because of his righteousness, according to his own mercy. And then notice what he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that is also signified in baptism, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to wash, the washing of regeneration and renewal. Baptism also signifies cleansing from guilt and sin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
again, it's the, the outward act of baptism, the application of the water to the person who is baptized, does not wash their consciences, but it tells us something. It teaches us what is the work of God in uh, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are three things. We could add a few more, uh, entrance into the visible church and so forth, that when God, when, when baptism is applied to someone, that God is, is giving them a name, as it were, and a name. Uh, God puts his name. We are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's placing his name on us, which is, in a way, saying a mark of ownership. I was struck by that as I was preparing this this week, because certain news items have come across. You've probably seen some of them as well. And three times in this past week, representatives of our government says, that children belong to all of us, which, of course, is ridiculous, but it's another way of saying that your children belong to the state. No, they don't. Parents, your children belong to God, and you are their caretakers. You have been placed in a position of stewardship for your children. He has put his name on them. Seals, signs and seals. What is a seal? Well, in this case, a seal is a mark that guarantees the terms of a promise based on the authority of the one making the promise. It's a guarantee. Let's just shorten it to say that. It's a guarantee based on the sovereign power and authority of the one making the promise. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I believe this passage actually has in its background that rather interesting and mysterious ceremony that God uh, did with, with Abraham during a dream. You might remember it. God affirmed his covenant with Abraham, and then Abraham, in a vision, he's kind of half, half there, half not, but he's, he's experiencing this. It's more than a dream. It's something else. But God allows Abraham to see these animals that have been divided, and a smoking, burning firepot passes between the animals. This is, a, this is an ancient form of oath-taking. And it would have been familiar to Abraham. It's somewhat mysterious to us. It would have been familiar to Abraham. And in a sense, what it is saying is this, and the, 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 the one who makes the covenant, the one who makes the oath, takes the oath, uh, is stating this. May I 
be destroyed, even as these animals have been destroyed, if I break my covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews says there are two things in which it is impossible for life, for God to lie. First of all, the promise itself, the promise of Abraham, it is impossible for God to lie. And then God has sealed that promise with an oath. In two things, it is impossible for God to lie. The promise of baptism is sealed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism seals to us based on the authority of Jesus Christ, who proclaims his own authority in these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And on the basis of that authority, he tells his church to go into the world, make disciples of the nations, teaching them, baptizing them into the name of the triune God. This also connects with what we read back in Ezekiel chapter 36. It is in the vindication of the holiness of his name, a name that is above all names in heaven and on earth, a name at which all will bow before him, a name that tells us and teaches us about his own nature. He is life itself. He has all life and being in himself. There is none higher. There is none that can make him change his mind. There is no plan B in, in case plan A fails. There is just God. And on his power and authority, the promise rests Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your house. That is the promise. And so it is signed and sealed. These promises are signed and sealed to us in baptism and also the Lord's Supper, but we're concentrating on baptism at first. I want to also talk to you that the sign of baptism in its biblical context, emphasizes the centrality of God's work, not ours. This is maybe a, it's an important difference that we have with our Baptist brothers and sisters. And they are Baptists, they are brothers and sisters, and they are Baptists too, but they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. But we do disagree in how we define this. Because of the emphasis on believer's baptism, it is very often presented and understood that baptism is a sign of your faith, that you have followed Christ into the waters of baptism, the emphasis being on your faith. We believe the Bible teaches 
more that the that baptism, particularly in the case of children of of infants, is a sign of God's promise. It is a sign of something objective, not subjective. It is a sign of the promise. And it, as such, it is a reminder that it is God who is at the center of the work of redemption. We are the passive receivers of both the outward act of baptism and the inner working of the Spirit's baptism in our hearts. We are the passive receivers of the promise. We even need the gift of repentance and faith in order to believe. We come as empty-handed sinners with no other hope of salvation than to come to the cross of Christ and put our trust in him and thus receiving the blessings of his promise. We are passive receivers of the promise. We don't even have it within us to work up the faith that we need to believe. We must passively receive that as well. Notice, again, I'm referring back to our passage in Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to mention other passages as well. There's a theme in this passage, and it's what I call the I will theme. This, again, historical context, it comes in the, in the light of Israel's failure to keep the covenant that God made with them through Moses on Mount Sinai. They have failed to keep that covenant. They have sinned. They have, they have worshipped idols. They have even gone so far as to offer their children, who are holy to the Lord, they have offered their children in human sacrifices to the pagan gods of the, of the nations around them. In the light of that failure, when God comes to them and promises them salvation, the emphasis is not on what you do, but what I will. It's the I will theme that runs through these redemptive passages in the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament prophets and going on to the New Testament. I will do this. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will vindicate my name. I will bring you back from the nations. What you are powerless to do, I will accomplish. Amen. This is the foundation of our faith in God. He rolls up his sleeve. He makes bare his strong right arm. And he does for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. I cannot meet the demands of God's law, but one did. He is Jesus Christ. And sinners come to the cross of Christ. And just like in Pilgrim's Progress, when they come to Mount Calvary and they see the cross and we run to the cross and the burden of guilt and sin uh, that is a burden on our back, the straps that bind it to us snap and the guilt and the sin roll down Mount Calvary into an empty tomb and we do not see them again. This is what God does. The centrality of the work of God. Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 1. And you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. Yeah, my wife and I, for, the, for 11 days, were on an extended road trip. Occasionally, we would see an animal that was hit by a car laying on the side of the road, especially going through Wyoming and South Dakota and so forth. I want you to try this experiment. Next time you see an animal laying on the side of the road that's been hit by a car and is dead on the side of the road, I want you to stop your car, get out, go speak to the animal. Get up. What are you doing laying in the road? Get up. Does the animal have the power to get up? It's dead. And you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in, tr in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul inserts, it's almost like he just can't stop himself from inserting in this, in this sentence, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The message we give to these dear children that have been baptized today and others who have come before them, is that they must trust in the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who has promised to wash them clean from their sins and give them new life in him through the work of the Spirit. Then, and only then, will the promises of the new covenant be realized in them. When we were reading from Ezekiel 36, I said Ezekiel actually mentions baptism. And did you pick that up? In the passage in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. The mode of baptism or sprinkling was very familiar to the people. That was the common mode of a purification rite, which by which various articles and people and so forth were uh, ceremonially cleansed. God is saying through Ezekiel that I will actually apply not physical water, but I will wash you or I will sprinkle clean water on you. In other words, I will, just as the sprinkling of water purifies articles in the temple, purifies the high priest in his ordination, purifies the people, purified the people when they we're with Moses in the, uh, at the mountain, and he sprinkles them uh, with the water and the hyssop and the, the blood and so forth. I will cleanse you from your uncleannesses. 
God is saying through Ezekiel that I will baptize you, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, which is about the work of the coming servant of God who will indeed redeem his people, uses the same imagery. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In Ezekiel, the sprinkling is applied to the nation of Israel, but in Isaiah, the sprinkling is applied to many nations. This is precisely what Jesus commanded his disciples. Take now this promise originally given to Israel and fulfilled in Christ. Take this now to the nations and gather the nations in to be discipled, to be baptized and taught. The work of the Redeemer, let me make this very clear, the work of the Redeemer is uniformly presented to us in the imagery of a sprinkling, because that was the common purification rite or ceremony of the Old Testament. People of God were very familiar with this. Hebrews writer of Hebrews amplifies this. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the promise of God. This is the way it was to be administered. And this is what we have done this morning. We do so in trust that God keeps his promise. Politicians come and go and they promise many things. People come and go, and they promise many things. God does not come and go. His, he is eternal. And his promises stand from age to age. He says to the people of Israel, not one word of my promises has failed. And God's people today and join that statement with a hearty amen. Not one word of his promise has failed. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a precious heritage in the children that you have blessed our families with. They are yours. We are their teachers, their parents, and we have taken vows to, lift, to raise them up according to the faith. But they are your children. They bear your name. And so we pray, Father, that your grace would pour, be poured out on them, that you would open their eyes, 
Give them new hearts. Take out the heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. Teach them in the heart to love your commandments, to love the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.